We are creatures who yearn. We seek, want, look for, hope for so much in our human mortal lives. We are naturally wanting and hoping and moving. And we do so for so many reasons. We are trying to figure out, you know, children are trying to figure out their world, babies trying to figure out their hands. I mean, yo, there's fingers. There's all these ways in which throughout our lives we are aspiring, wanting, seeking. And and we do so in so many forms, in so many ways that we are finding not just what the world looks like, but why the world and why we are and why all of us are. We want meaning as well. This is an inherent part of our yearning. I so appreciate putting it into the very specific kind of context of hide and seek with God, that kind of story. And all the ways that, you know, because God's like, well, I got nothing to do. Let's go play a game. And invites, invites the people in to come in as part of it. So the yearning is also about joy. It's about fun, about discovery. And as human beings, it has been, in, our yearning and our seeking has been informed through and by time and geography and politics and perception and the environment. Why do things happen the way they do, I wonder. We are always seeking and always coming up with new variations on that experience and those results. And it certainly has led to an enormous variety of religious experience. There are so many traditions around, you know, just in our communities and around the world that we will never even be aware of and yet still inform the human experience. And as Unitarian Universalists, we've been doing this for this kind of yearning and exploring for a really long time. Uh, in the West, for example, um, Ralph Waldo Emerson didn't just stay with of our, of our Unitarian past, um, didn't just stay with uh, the kind of the Christian context in which he was surrounded in uh, 19th century uh, Massachusetts and this country, but he wanted to know more and seek more. And along with him, along with the transcendentalists who were like, we can have direct encounters of the world. And we want to have all the encounter we possibly can. And that included not simply staying with Western religious texts, but going further into other traditions, such as Hinduism. They were amongst the early readers in this country of the Hindu sacred text, the Bhagavad Gita, for example. A place, a text that is an opportunity to discover truth and spirit and a deep connection with the centuries. Emerson said of experience with the Gita, he said, I owed, my friend and I owed a magnificent day to the Bhagavad Gita. 
It was the first of books. It was as if an empire spoke to us, nothing small or unworthy, but large, serene, consistent, the voice of an old intelligence in which in another age and climate had pondered and thus disposed of the same questions which exercise us. Now, I'm not going to say that Eastern religious exploration kind of thundered into this country with the transcendentalists, but, but a little while later, after the Civil War, here is this country rebuilding, expanding, growing, and was so moved to hold a world exposition. It was called the Columbia Exposition in recognition. It was going to be held in 1893 to mark the 400th anniversary of Columbus coming to these continents. Now, to even name that on, in a day when we're recognizing um, our indigenous neighbors is just recognition of how deep this goes. Let's put it this way. But this is what the exposition was in honor of and recognition of. And so it was a world's fair in Chicago on the shores of Lake Michigan. Science, art, architecture, humanities, food. I think, was it cornflakes that showed up? Is that one of our legacies from the 1893 exposition? Maybe um, uh, there were a lot of other good foods. Now I don't remember that, but there were a lot of good foods. Let's go with corn checks, corn, corn flakes. Um, and, and for six months, this also part of the, that six month window for the exposition also included religion. It was, became the parliament of the world's religions, the first of its kind for a meeting of West and East in religious conversation. As they were heading, you know, the people were heading into the 20th century, also trying to uh, integrate with and know how to interact with immigrants from many different cultures and many different religious traditions coming into this country. Here was a moment for connecting, for meeting each other, for having an understanding of values and faith and religious expression, and the hope and a desire for peace, something this, this would kind of encounter would lead to common purpose and relationship. And so some of their objectives um, stated in the committee in 1891 were to show men, okay, so it was men, language there, in the most impressive way, what and how many important truths the various religions hold in common uh, to promote and deepen the spirit of human uh, siblinghood among religious people of diverse faiths, though through a friendly conference, mutual understanding, not seeking to foster uh, being indifferent, and, and not trying to make it all any one unified statement either. We're trying, not trying to make everybody the same. They're trying to set forth what was, are the most important and distinctive truths held and taught by each religion, um, and including the range in the Christian traditions, and to inquire what each light, uh, what each light, each religion could afford to the other religions of the world. Like, 
they're throwing it wide open. Come on in and let's see what we got. It was chaired by John Henry Barrows, a Presbyterian minister. Uh, he, he had his moments of having to advocate for having this uh, parliament in connection with the larger exposition. He said, many felt that religion was an element of perpetual discord, which should not be thrust amidst the magnificent harmonies of the fraternal assembly of nations. On the other hand, he said, it was felt that the tendencies of modern civilization were toward unity. So some feel that a parliament of religions was the necessity of the age. So people were aware that bringing in religion into this larger conversation of the exposition was a risk. They knew how conflicted religion can be. And they knew it needed to happen. The committee's general secretary was the Reverend Jenkins Lloyd-Jones, Unitarian minister, although interesting by that time in his life, one that wasn't really emphasizing um, the Christian part. He was a person of, this, Jones was a person of great yearning. He was born into a Welsh farm family in this country. He had little formal education, but, but got the aspiration to enter into ministry. He felt that call. And so he started at the seminary Meadville Lombard in Chicago, but had to begin that with like entry-level college classes. I mean, he really hadn't had the formal education to be ready for graduate study. But within a few years, he was at the top of his class. He's notable for traversing kind of the entire West in order to spread the word of Unitarianism. Uh, in fulfillment of his vision, he was trying to be more expansive, more inclusive. He ended up being, for a while, the head of the Western Unitarian Conference and continued, and then went back to serving in a uh, congregation, All Souls, in Chicago. Um, but he also was attended to details. He would visit small congregations. He supported women in ministry and much more. So he Jones saw the possibility of this parliament. Um, and as secretary, he was remembered. I got to read one of the original documents remembering him in his obituary. He was remembered as a kind of a singular source of energy and organization who kept motivating and moving while the planners worked on this massive arrangement. And it was three years in the making. They sent out 10,000 invitations around the world. 10,000 invitations in 1891 in order to include as many people. And so many responded. It was largely Christian. You had Catholic, Protestant, Unitarian, Universalist, but you also had Hindu and Buddhist and Jain and Jews and adherents to Shinto and Zoroaster, all for the first time in history coming together. There were some who chose not to participate. Um, the Archbishop of Canterbury from Britain um, wrote that his disapproval was based on the fact that the Christian religion is the one religion. Hello. Right. I can hear that attitude just in the, mm -mm. I do not understand how that religion can be regarded as a member of a parliament of religions without assuming the equality of the other intended members and the parity of their position and claims. So, truly not willing to see others as equals. 
all right, now we know. Good clarity is good. Yeah. But, and certainly people came to this event with lots of different perceptions and agendas and priorities, but it was a grand and global event. And I want to just, there's one photo I want to get to just kind of show the, the scope of this so we can get this on. Because um, this gathering is described as panoramic. And I think if we can get the photo up, we could actually truly see that. Is it working? Hmm? There we go. All right. Thank you. So this is kind of the signature photo of the gathering, uh, one of the gatherings of this event. And you have just a range of world leaders, a range of uh, just by people, what people are wearing, their religious and cultural traditions. Um, you certainly have a lot of uh, white men in dark suits. That's pretty typical too. Um, but it just kind of captures a snapshot of truly the, the range that was possible uh, and in those conversations. And I think they basically just kind of crowded around each other and talked about stuff for hours and hours and hours. And in the bottom rows, in looking at a little bit of detail, there are women in there. There are women in attendance. It's not just all the guys. All right. So it brought together hundreds of thousands of people. It was kind of the signature notable event of this exposition. And it captured such a range of human culture and faith in that moment. Now, there were some problems. Um, there were some concerns about this. Uh, there were some, many in the West, especially uh, certain Christian elements, that their agenda was to say, yes, we have all of these wonderful religions, and it's, you know, we'll gather all this truth. Oh, yeah, and Christianity still wins. But everybody can say. You know, we can all play and talk, but Christianity still wins. You know, what can you do? Um, there were a few women speaking. I think in the sources I said there were 14 women who spoke out of hundreds of thousands of people there. Um, there was also very little, almost no inclusion of Africans or African-Americans. Uh, Frederick Douglass, you know, was very as a notable um, uh, abolitionist, uh, very much spoke to that. Uh, African-American woman Fanny Barrier Williams declared, it is a monstrous thing that nearly one half of the so-called evangelical churches of this country repudiate and haughtily deny fellowship to every Christian lady and gentleman happening to be of African descent. She was critical of the so-called acceptance in Christian churches when African-Americans were not welcome in the white churches. And also, there was a relegation of indigenous faith and people as, at best, curiosities. They were labeled savages and were on the midway for gawking. They were not at all included in the event. No, there was no understanding of Native American cultures as having spiritual perspectives at that point. So let me just pause there. Let me just pause there and see how deeply dehumanizing that is. That these people who have been in this land for centuries 
thousands of years, we're not seen to be spiritual beings. It is something to say to recognize how far we have had to come and how far we have to go. I will add that in the 20th century, the parliaments um, that have gathered have intentionally brought in indigenous peoples and took the criticism that they offered as well as the gifts. One of the most notable positive moments that I think really moved forward the whole conversation and recognition of East and West in religious life was that of the appearance, the appearance of Swami Vivekananda. He was the primary example of Eastern traditions uh, being experienced by the West. And he offered this warm and welcoming message surprised the Westerners by speaking English. Okay, yeah, there's patronizing there too, but we'll go with it. This was the most Westerners' first introduction to Hinduism. And he had spoke, he came up to speak after so many had delivered kind of lengthy treatises and statements. But he was also, Vivekananda at that moment, was 30 years old, representing the entirety of the Hindu world to the world. And he had no notes, and he was nervous. I can't blame him. And he simply started with, sisters and brothers of America. Sisters and brothers of America. And something about such a simple and warm, and a warm greeting that spoke to the heart of the whole purpose of the gathering he received a three-minute standing ovation, just starting there. He says, I'm proud to belong to a religion which has taught the world both tolerance and universal acceptance. We believe not only in universal toleration, we accept all religions as true. And he invoked, in his talking, he invoked the sacred text, the Bhagavad Gita, to emphasize the message of multiple paths. Uh, to reach the truth. In the Gita, Lord Krishna proclaims, whoever so comes to me through whatsoever form, I reach them. All people are struggling through paths which in the end lead to me. Part of the concern from Vivekananda um, was about the religious extremism that in part informed and inspired the parliament to happen. And he cautioned against it. He said, I fervently hope that the bell that tolled this morning in honor of this convention may be the death knell of all fanaticism, of all persecutions of the sword or with the pen, and of all uncharitable feelings between people wending their way to the same goal. He offered no relativism or absolutism. It wasn't an anything goes. You can believe whatever you want. And there's not, he wasn't offering, saying you had to find an ultimate path or one single path. He was offering a third one that offered harmony and respected the range of experience. 
He said, Christian, Christian is not to become Hindu or a Buddhist, nor a Hindu or Buddhist to become Christian. It was looking at harmony from diversity, that each tradition is part of the tapestry of the world. And there he was offerings in a singular way, modeling the pluralism that has evolved over time. The parliament ended well. Everyone, of course, took their own perspectives and interpretations. Some of them still said, yay, Christian won. But there we go. Including even the chair, uh, Barrows himself. But it raised awareness and tolerance and acceptance and communication. It informed so many things, including further efforts like the International Association of Religious Freedom, of which the Universalists are a part. But then there was a, a gap, a gap. That, that was a big undertaking to have the kind of exposition such as that. And the next Parliament of World Religions was, eight, was in 1993 in Chicago. There was a renewal of mutual aspiration and education in the world as they were anticipating the 21st century. The theme of that was really not a particular theme, but simply the message saying there is no better time than now for this to happen again. And it wasn't trying to have a single goal, but it was a working gathering. It was laying the foundation of where to go from there in a world of so many different faiths. And that's happened every five years since. And of course, the Unitarian Universalists from this congregation showing up at them. Uh, there was a particular Unitarian Universalist World article that cited the um, parliament in Toronto in 2018, previous one, where this, this congregation shows up because there are 25 people from this congregation at Toronto. That was a lot. For this coming year, we are called again into a parliament and gathered this time for human rights. The theme is a call to conscience, defending freedom and human rights. It'll be in Chicago in August 2023. In a time where we are facing opposition, strife, antagonism, we are called as people who yearn. We are called into being once again coming together to refresh our efforts with our neighbors for equity, compassion, and connection. And as a congregation, we can be present there, participate yet again in the larger experience of our human religious expression. And in this year leading up to the parliament, we'll be exploring some of our own tradition and many sources. And of course, if you're interested in attending please let us know. Whether you attend in person or by proxy or simply as part of this conversation with this congregation, we all are part of responding to this call. The world does not need to be so divided, does not need to be dismissive of human dignity. We do not need to let it be so. We can do our part for the health of the world through our own encounter with faith, and ethics and philosophy. So let us respond. Let us do so in the spirit of love, in the spirit of hope, in the spirit of our eternal human search.
Let us go forth. Amen.